Well, as we open the word of God together, let's bow in a word of prayer. Oh, Jesus, we do lift our eyes to you this morning. We thank you that you are the risen king, the Lord of lords. We come to your word this morning, recognizing our need for you by your spirit to illuminate our minds, to please move all distractions aside, enable us to be taught what you want us to learn. And we pray this in your mighty name, amen. Well, it was Jesus who famously said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And while Jesus here was pitting his, the two masters as God and money, the principle applies for all people and with all other masters. But the point is, is that everyone has a master. As Bob Dylan said, right, you, you got to serve somebody. Everyone's serving someone. Doesn't matter who you are. Now, hum humanity doesn't like to admit this. They don't want to think that they're submitted to anyone. Of course, here in America, right, we're free. This is the land of free, home of the brave. We're independent. We make our own choices. We chart our own course. And there's, of course, truth in that. We are free to make choices and to do what pleases us. But even still, as we make our own choices, we're serving a master. And that's what the scriptures make clear for us. In our passage today, Jesus is going to describe the qualities of two kinds of people. People who are following two different masters. And Jesus is also going to describe the eternal consequences of choosing one master over another. Choosing here in this passage is not the same as choosing two different kinds of ice cream. Some like chocolate, some like vanilla. Take your pick, it's fine either way. No, there's, there's eternal consequences to this choice. There's things that will last, for, consequences that will last forever. And so I invite you to open up your copy of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six. Last week we looked at how Jesus chose his disciples, his 12 apostles. And now we're going to see Jesus begin to teach and train those apostles. Luke chapter 17, or chapter 6, verse 17, all the way through verse 49 to the end of the chapter, is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been called the Sermon on the Plain because verse 17 says he came down to a level place or to a plain. But I believe that both Matthew and Luke have recorded summaries of the same sermon. But let's begin and look at our text for this morning, verse 17 through, verse 17 through verse 26, Luke chapter 6. Follow along as I read. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem 
and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. As I said, I believe that this is Luke's account of the same sermon recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Now, some have troubled uh, reconciling the two because Matthew says that Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down to teach, and here it seems in verse 17, he came down from the mountain and he stood on a level plain. Seems to be two different locations. But I believe the two accounts can be reconciled in this way. We know that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray all night, and then he called his disciples to him, as we saw last week, and he chose from amongst his group of disciples 12 apostles. Verse 17 then says that he came down from the mountain and stood on a level place. This doesn't mean that he went to the very, very bottom of the mountain. It could mean that he came down from the upper reaches of the mountain down to a lower place in which there was a level place on the mountainside, such as a plateau, a place that was more level. And it's there that we read in verses 17 through 19 that he healed many people. They came to him. And so he's healing them. They're touching him. And uh, power's going out of him. And then it's time to teach. It's time for him to deliver his sermon. And so then he goes up at a more elevated place and sits down and begins to teach and gives the sermon as we have recorded here and in Matthew chapter 5. I think the two accounts can easily be reconciled. But before Jesus launches into his sermon, he gives us a little summary here of the people, the audience that uh, came to hear Jesus and why they came to him. First, in verse 17, we are introduced to the different groups of people. There's three different groups, and each group keeps getting larger. First, there's the 12 apostles. It says that he, Jesus, came down with them. Those 12 came down with him. But we also see that there was a great crowd of his disciples. And thirdly, a great multitude of people. This multitude of people includes people from all over the area. Luke makes it clear by identifying uh, the area in the south, all Judea and Jerusalem, and to the area of the north, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon that was north of Israel, and presumably every, everybody in between. In fact, Mark and Matthew talk about people from Galilee and, and other areas that were coming to him. And so Luke here is using this, the talking of the two extremities, the south and the north, 
as the far reaches that people are coming to be able to hear Jesus. The point is that they came from all over that area. Now, why did they come? Why did they come and flock to Jesus, travel many miles in order to be near him? Well, there's two reasons given in verse 18. Look at it with me. It says, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. The two purposes these people came is to hear him, hear his teaching, and to be healed of his diseases, uh, be healed of their diseases. We're going to hear his teaching in a little bit, but Luke here then focuses on the healing aspect, the healing ministry. They are being healed from diseases, and it says those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And so Jesus, the Spirit-anointed Messiah, is here exhibiting for all who came to be able to see that he is indeed endowed and anointed with the Spirit of God so that he is able to bring about these kingdom uh, conditions as healings, uh, people are being healed. And as the kingdom of darkness, Satan and his minions, the demons, are being cast out of people. No longer are they going to reign supreme in people, but instead Jesus shows his power over them and casts them out. Jesus is almighty, and he is here in the flesh bringing about the power of God. And so people could see this. This, this man, there's this power that is, that is coming out of him. And so it says that, verse 19, all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him. They just needed to get close and touch him, and they were healed. I mean, how amazing, how frantic would you be to get near a man that you simply needed to touch him, and you'd be healed. You can imagine the craziness of people all moving in, trying to touch Jesus, and he's trying to probably deal with someone individually, and people are touching him from all around. It's a chaotic scene of people wanting to get near the Messiah. Israel had never seen anyone like this before, and understandably, it drew a phenomenal crowd. But it's in the presence of this crowd that Jesus doesn't want to just heal, but he wants to give a message, he wants to teach and particularly teaches disciples. And so, verse 20 says that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. He focused particularly on them. Matthew chapter 5 says, again, he had to go to an elevated place and sit down. That would have been a, a cue to everybody. Okay, I need to stop pressing in to try to touch this guy. I need to sit back and let him teach now. This is not the time to be healed. This is the time to listen. As Jesus would launch into his sermon. And as I said earlier, he begins and ends his sermon by describing two paths, two ways of living. Here at the beginning, as we read, we see the blessings and the curses, the blessings and the woes. He's going to end the sermon with the, the tale of a wise and foolish builders, right? Those who build their house upon the rock and those who build their house upon the sand. And so we see that Jesus is putting this choice before the audience, before the people. There's two choices here. One in which you'll be blessed and one in which you'll be cursed and there'll be woes. And there are really two ways of living, right? The first is the way of godliness. The second is the way of worldliness. Godliness and worldliness. The way of following Jesus and the way of following this world. The way of being a disciple of Jesus and the way of being a disciple of the world. And Jesus has some powerful words to say about each path. 
He presents these two ways so that everyone who was listening could evaluate their own lives and to think about which way they were on. The listeners need to ask themselves what characterized their lives and what trajectory they were on, and therefore, what was their destiny? Jesus was making it clear which, which, where those paths ended. And the same is true for us today. We each need to examine what Jesus has to say about blessings and, a, and condemnation. And we need to ask ourselves, what path am I on? Whose disciple am I? Am I in the way of godliness or in the way of worldliness? And as we will see, this question is not so much one of religious observance as much as it is about heart-level allegiance. In other words, it doesn't matter what church you go to or what official religion you're a part of, but it matters deep down in your heart, who are you serving? Whose disciple are you? So to help his audience and us today to evaluate our allegiance, he lists four qualities of one of his disciples and then four qualities of a disciple of the world. And he does this, as he does this, he also pronounces the ultimate result of those two discipleship paths. So this morning, we only have time to look at the qualities of a disciple of Jesus. Next week, we will look at the qualities of the disciple of the world. And so let's look at what these, first look at these qualities of a disciple of Jesus. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? And we'll see this in verses 20 through 23. Each of these statements in verses 20 through 23 begin with the word blessed. And they have traditionally been called the Beatitudes. Maybe you've heard that before. And that simply means a Beatitude is simply a state of blessedness. And so these, these statements are, are statements of how to be in that state of blessedness. Now, it's important to realize I don't think these statements are things or hoops that people have to jump through in order to be blessed. In other words, before they can follow Jesus, they have to have these qualities in place. I believe that these are qualities that will manifest themselves in the life of the person who's repented of their sins and followed Jesus. In other words, they're like fruit of the Spirit. Once we are following Jesus, these are then characterized by us. God will produce these in our lives as we seek to follow him wholeheartedly. Now, as we evaluate ourselves, there's different ways that we can respond to this. For the Christian who, who looks at these qualities and, and we realize, man, my life doesn't quite measure up. I'm not quite having this, I'm not characterized with this quality of a disciple as, as is laid out in these Beatitudes. And so we can tend to think, well, God, you got to produce this in me. So we pray and we ask God to do it. And we can kind of take a let go and let God kind of attitude. And we just sit back and wait for God to do these things in us. But that would be the wrong approach. We need, to, we need to roll up our sleeves and get to work and seek to, to see these qualities in our lives, but we do it not in dependence upon the flesh trying to prove our own righteousness. We do it trusting in the righteousness provided by Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And so we, we, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says. But another response to these would be those who are a disciple of the world and, and they want to 
be a disciple of Jesus and they, and they say, whoa, that seems so great. I want to do those. I want to see those things in my life. And they simply take it upon them to, to uh, bring about moral reform in their life. If I simply change my morals and I make some better decisions, then I, I'll be like a disciple of Jesus. But that would be the wrong response as well. Jesus made clear in his message, and John the Baptist before him, that in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a, a child of the king, you've got to go through the door of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There must be a repentance and confessing of our sin before him. And so, let's look then at these qualities of a disciple of Jesus. The first quality in verse 20 is that a disciple of Jesus is spiritually poor. A disciple of Jesus is spiritually poor. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus first says that those who are blessed are those who are poor. Now, this could mean that all those who are financially disadvantaged are blessed. But I don't think that best fits the understanding that Jesus gives here. Jesus' concerns throughout this passage are spiritual concerns, not economic concerns. And if we understand the Old Testament precedent coming into this that Jesus' readers would have understood is that the Old Testament often portrays the poor not just as economically uh, disadvantaged, but as pious, humble, and trusting in God. In other words, it's not just the poor, but it's the pious poor. And so what we, we understand from this is that the, the poor are often those who are dependent on the Lord. They look to God as their provider. They see that they, that they need what He provides they realize that both physically and spiritually, all they need or have comes from the Lord. Now, being poor doesn't instantly make someone more spiritual, but it might put them in a, a circumstance that might cause them to have to look to the Lord and because they're more desperate. Now, Jesus had said in Luke chapter 4, as he was preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, and he he outlined his mission from Isaiah 61. And from there, he, he said that he was sent he was anointed with the Spirit, and he was sent to proclaim good news to the poor. And as we studied that passage, we looked at all those categories of the people that he was sent to was not so much to the physical categories or the economic categories, but to spiritual categories. It refers to the spiritual poor. The good news or gospel of Jesus' ministry was not money to the material poor, but was spiritual riches to the spiritual poor. It was those who were destitute spiritually that needed what Jesus could provide. Therefore, when Jesus looks to his disciples and says the poor are blessed, he is saying that it's those who take no confidence in the flesh and look dependently on the Lord are the ones who receive divine approval. And this explanation harmonizes with the way that Matthew records this beatitude, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, Jesus is not so much highlighting a socioeconomic class, but a spiritual class of people. They, these are people who are aware of their own neediness. They have no spiritual wealth by which they can proudly come into God's presence. 
They come on their knees confessing their own emptiness. It's like the song that we sang, right? We recognize that we have, we're, we're needy sinners. We're poor and helpless, lost and, and broken by the fall. And we realize that we, all we can do is come to God on our knees, recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt. And we can pray with the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. This is just an example of that idea and attitude expressed throughout the Old Testament. Well, Jesus then gives a promise to those who are poor in spirit. A promise. He says to them that belongs the kingdom of God. To them belongs the kingdom of God. For yours is the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus made it clear in Luke chapter 4, verse 44, that he had been sent by the Father to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The Messianic kingdom, this is what was promised by all of Israel's prophets in the Old Testament as coming with the arrival of the Messiah. And so the, the message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. If you would but repent, they need to repent of their sin and believe on Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah. And if they responded favorably to Jesus, then the Messianic kingdom would be established. The king had arrived and thus the kingdom was near, but they needed to accept him as their king. Jesus here then says that whenever that kingdom comes, the spiritually poor will inherit that kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, the good news of the kingdom he's proclaiming, that those who are spiritually poor, who are destitute, recognizing that they have no righteousness of their own, that they need everything from the Lord, they're the ones who belong to the kingdom. They will inherit the kingdom. In other words, they are true kingdom citizens. For us today, we know that the kingdom of God is still future. Jesus has not returned to set up his millennial kingdom. When he returns in glory, Matthew 25 says, he's not now reigning upon his throne of David in Jerusalem. He will be, but he's currently at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, Psalm 110, verse 1. And so like the other promises that we see in this passage, the ultimate blessing associated with following Christ awaits an ultimate fulfillment on a future day. We certainly receive blessings now through our union with Christ, but the full gift God has for us will not come until the end and that kingdom is ushered in. And so as we look here that Jesus says, blessed are the poor or the poor in spirit, we need to ask ourselves, are are we spiritually poor? What's the attitude in our spirit, in our hearts? Are we dependent upon the Lord? Do we see ourselves as poor and needy? Do we look to God for mercy and for provision and for help? This can mean physical provision, but most importantly, spiritual provision. Recognizing that we bring nothing to the table that when we come to God, we don't have any righteousness, anything by which we can say, hey God, look at me. We are spiritually destitute. This begins at salvation, right? We cry out to God to save us, and then it carries throughout our Christian life, our discipleship as we turn to God in prayer for all things. And we recognize that there is no point that we can take pride in our flesh and 
later on in our Christian life bring some of our own righteousness. Just like at the beginning of the Christian life, so even unto the very end, we, all of the good things in our life, all of the spiritual progress that we make is all accredited to God and to God alone. Friends, we confess our spiritual bankruptcy all the way through our Christian life. We are poor and needy every single moment. And when we confess that, when we have that attitude, we are blessed and we are promised that we will belong to the kingdom. We turn to, pr- turn to God in prayer for all things, both physical and spiritual. So the first quality of a disciple of Jesus is that he is spiritually poor. The second quality that we see in this text that characterizes a disciple of Jesus is that they are spiritually hungry. Spiritually hungry. Look in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. For you shall be satisfied. The true disciple of Jesus hungers now in the present life. As Matthew records in his beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting are universal experiences to mankind, right? We all know what that is like. But those of us in the modern West do not have the same experience with, the, with hunger and thirsting like people in ancient times did and people in other parts of the world do now. Dr. Charles Quarles has written this. He said, Few modern Americans have ever experienced true hunger or thirst. Few first century Jews had not. They were familiar with the powerful and even painful craving of the body for food and drink. They had suffered horrible deprivation because of poverty, famine, and siege. And you can, there's one example in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 6, that describes the siege by the king of Assyria against Samaria, the capital of Israel at the time. And this caused a great famine as the enemy circled the city. And it was so severe there in the city that a, a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, a fourth of a cab of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver, and mothers even cannibalized their own children. And this shows that the ancients knew of hunger so intense that one would do or give anything to satisfy that longing. And thus hunger and thirst were powerful metaphors for the most intense cravings and desires that mankind can know. We hunger a little bit when it reaches 12 o'clock on Sunday and go, oh, we should probably go to lunch, right? That's not the hunger of those who have not had a meal in days, the thirst of those who have not had a drop of water in days. And the OT, the, the whole Testament, uses these metaphors to describe someone who is spiritually desperate for the Lord. You, you remember uh, Psalm 42, familiar verse. As the deer pants for flowing waters, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. These are Old Testament examples of using this analogy for for thirsting and hungering for God 
And I believe Jesus draws upon these metaphors and applies it here to his disciples. Those who follow Jesus will hunger for God, will desire him with everything that they have, and they'll long for his righteousness to be manifest in their lives. They want to be close to God and to live like God. Again, Dr. Quarles, I'll quote several times from uh, his, I appreciated his work on these verses. He makes this helpful observation. He says, Jesus could easily have described his disciples as those who want to be obedient or desire holiness. But such language simply was not powerful enough. The true disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He longs to live a godly life as much as a starving man longs for his next piece of bread or a parched tongue yearns for a drop of water. This is what characterizes a disciple of Jesus is that there's a a starving, a, a thirst for God and for his righteousness. They want to live a godly life, want to live a God word life. Jesus says, Blessed are you who, hung, who are hungry now. And the promise is, for you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. Notice the future tense. You will be satisfied. Notice the passive nature. Not you're, you're going to satisfy yourself, but rather you're going to be satisfied. Someone else is going to provide that satisfaction, and we know that that is God who will provide that. Those who hunger now and desire God now will receive the full satisfaction from God's hand. Now we know that God grants some of the, uh, fulfills those desires now in many ways as we commune with the Lord through the word of God and as we worship together. But we know that we long and we hunger in this day for when sin will be done away with, when our minds can fully understand and grasp who God is and all the slowness of our minds and all the things that bog us down and and keep us from fully delighting in all of who God is will be taken away and we'll be fully satisfied as we see God in all of his grandeur and glory. When we see the Messiah and our hearts will be fully satisfied and his righteousness will will be evident in our life, in our lives. Now, Jesus here is not saying the same thing as, as you'll find maybe in cults or in other religious sects where the, the penitent uh, supplicant, the person who really desires uh, a deeper spiritual life, will have to go through some intense rituals and practices, climb that mountain, or, or spend X number of hours doing X, Y, and Z in order to attain the next spiritual level. That's not what Jesus is advocating here. Rather, he's saying that the believer simply needs to go to God, cry out to him. As a baby bird is there in the nest and simply opens its mouth for the mother to feed him. So we simply cry out to God and say, God, please satisfy me. Please give me the holiness and righteousness that I desire and that I hunger and long for. And so I ask you this morning, are you spiritually hungry? Do you desire the Lord? Do you desire to walk in his ways? Not a a light little desire, but a strong hungering after him. Is it it a desire that that is supreme above everything else? You can't stop until you get it. Do you long to see 
Christ in his glory put on display in your life. The promise is that you will be satisfied. The third characteristic or quality of a disciple of Jesus we see in this text is that a disciple is spiritually sorrowful. Spiritually sorrowful. Jesus said, the second half of verse 21, look at it. He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, what is the weeping that Jesus speaks of here? Is he just talking about those who happen to be sad in a general sense? Those who are depressed are going to receive this blessing? I don't think so. Because, see, the Bible talks about two different kinds of grief. There's worldly grief and there's godly grief which tells us that not not all grief is the same. Not all sadness comes from the same heart. And so I believe there needs to be a distinction here as well. And so in connection with what we've already seen, it seems to make the most sense that this mourning, this sorrow, is sorrow over spiritual concerns. This means sorrow over sin and its effects. Sin in our lives, sin in other people's lives, sin in the world, and the effects of that sin all around us as we live in this fallen world. Godly believers in this age will mourn over the sin that they see in their life. They will not shrug it off. They will not excuse sin away. They also will not simply feel bad about it, but they will truly repent of their sin with weeping and mourning. Now, this, now get me, this doesn't actually mean that there's gonna be tears every single time that we have to repent of our sin. But it means that a true disciple of Jesus will grieve in their heart over offending the Lord, over disobeying the word of God. I read a quote this week as, as uh, we'll see in uh, the fourth quality here coming up on the idea of persecution. I was reading of stories of the persecuted around the world, uh, both in recent times as well as ancient times. And one, one quote stood out to me as, uh, this was just a few decades ago, the persecuted in Vietnam were being, um, a man was there spending time with the persecuted there, uh, persecuted believers. And someone made a comment about fearing persecution and fearing suffering. And one believer spoke up and said, no, we, we don't fear, uh, what we fear most is not suffering. What we fear most is not persecution. What we fear most is being disobedient to the word of God. We need to have that same kind of fear and seriousness about God's word. That we don't want to do anything that would displease the Lord they would disobey his word, and then we mourn and we weep when we do. You see, worldly grief is only sad about the consequences. That, oh no, things turned out bad. People found out about my sin. Ah, now my world's falling apart, and things that I wanted to happen aren't happening. I've seen people who look sad and are even weeping tears, but their actions go on to show that they haven't truly repented. It's possible to weep. It's possible to look very sad and to feel sad and yet not actually grieve in a godly way. Because, you see, they were sad about everything that transpired as a result of their sin, but they were not grieved about how their sin had transgressed God's word. You see, a true disciple of of Jesus will be hungering for God, will be recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy, 
And thus when they see their sin, it'll cut them deep. They'll hurt because they've displeased their Lord and Savior. They grieve that they have disobeyed. But on top of this, I think Jesus' words here also includes, as I said, grieving over the effects of sin and the sin that we see in others. Do we not grieve now in this life over the sin that we see in family members, the sin that we see in friends, the sin that we see committed by nations in groups of people, the rebellion against Christ, and we grieve about the effects of sin, the, the families that are torn apart, relationships that are, that are shattered. We grieve over death, the loss of loved ones that are a result of, the, of sin entering the world. We as believers of Christ have much to weep about We see others who are even mistreated and we grieve over them as well. But there's a promise. Just as he's given promises and the others, he gives us a promise here. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You shall laugh. Talk about a contrast, right? Talk about a reversal. We might be the sorrowful ones now, weeping over our sin while the world gloats over theirs. But one day, we will have a state of bliss, have a state of happiness. We will have our fortunes reversed. One day we will laugh. Even though we weep now, it'll change. This will be part of when Jesus uh, returns, his future mission. Isaiah 61 says that Jesus has been sent to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Jesus comes to change mourning into gladness. And we know that in the new heavens and the new earth, when the old earth has passed away, that these tears will be wiped away. Revelation chapter 21, verses three through four says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And get this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, there is oftentimes great sorrow in this life, great pain, great suffering, and it grieves our hearts and we weep many tears. But we have the hope and the promise that it will not forever be this way. Jesus will come to reverse our fortunes. One day all the wrongs will be made right, all the tears will be wiped away. And in fact, we are gonna laugh we're going to be in the presence of Christ with all the redeemed and we're going to have a ball. We're going to be rejoicing together at all that Jesus has done and praising his name that we are there and all of our past sorrows will be history. And so we who are suffering now and weep now can look forward with hope for what Jesus will do. But that leads us now to the, the final characteristic, the final quality of a disciple of Jesus in this text, and that is that a disciple is physically persecuted. A disciple of Jesus 
is physically persecuted. And it's here in verses 22 through 23 that we are brought some hard words. Some words that are countercultural. Some words that don't make sense to our sensibilities, uh, to how we live our lives, the decisions that we make every day in which we try to have the most comfortable lives, in which we try to do what feels the best. There's new inventions trying to make us feel good, and there's every aspect of our lives is trying to be quicker, easier, better. And yet, to follow Jesus takes us in the opposite direction. Look at verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus tells his disciples that just like those other qualities that they have, and they'll be blessed if they have those, so here, when they receive persecution, they will be blessed here as well. They will receive divine approval when they're persecuted for Jesus. And this is the key phrase in these two verses. It's at the end of verse 22. It says that all these things will happen to you, look at it, end of verse 22, on account of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that you'll be blessed if these things happen to you on my account. If, if they happen because of Jesus, then that is where we receive the blessing. In other words, these sorts of actions done to us just because of any other reason is not where the blessing comes. This promise is for those who suffer because they are Christians. Suffer because they are Christians. Notice verse 22, the four verbs used to describe the mistreatment of Christians by the people of the world. Blessed are you when people hate you. This is the attitude of disgust and disapproval. They, there's hatred. And then he says, and, and when they exclude you, or could be translated ostracize you, they put you on the outs, they don't want you in their groups anymore. They want you to move outside of that. You don't belong with us. You're not one of us. This is when Christians are considered unfit for a business, an organization, a city, or a nation. He also says, and when they revile you, revile, this is the hurling of insults at Christians, calling them names, making fun of them, trying to tease them. And finally, spurn your name as evil. Finally, Jesus says that they will ultimately drag a Christian's reputation through the mud. They will cast Christians out because they are considered evil. Here we stand with Jesus, and yet in the eyes of the world, we're labeled evil. Jesus' message is clear, right? You can expect harassment and persecution because of your allegiance to him. But we can know that we'll be blessed. Isn't this such a backwards way of thinking? There's exile, there's slander, there's persecution, and yet that is the place where blessing is found. God's divine approval comes down to us when we are in that place. Why do disciples of Jesus experience this harmful treatment? 
Why does the world turn against us so violently? Because that's the way they treated Jesus. I remind you, in fact, we can turn there, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. This is given on the night before Jesus was crucified. He's given some of his final instructions to his disciples, knowing that it's just a matter of time before he leaves. And he tells them this, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So ever since Jesus gave this instruction to his disciples, we've been put on notice that just as they hated him, they will hate us as well. And the history of the church has shown that this is the case, right? The Christians, ever since the very beginning, have been hated and persecuted and reviled for Christ's sake. The 12 apostles were almost all murdered themselves. And early Christians were fed to wild animals in the Colosseum for sport. And were even lit on fire by Nero to serve as lighting in his private garden. They were slandered. They were reviled, treated as evil. Again, Dr. Quarles has, has written this about how Christians were reviled in the early centuries. He says, during the first three centuries of church history, Christians were accused of cannibalism, incest, atheism, and general hatred of humanity. Such accusations were gross distortions of actual Christian practices. The charge of cannibalism was probably related to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This is the body and blood of Christ, right? The charge of incest was probably related to the early Christian practice of believing couples referring to their spouses as sisters and brothers. The charge of atheism was related to the Christians' rejection of the gods of the Roman pantheon. And the charge of general hatred of humanity related to the Christians' refusal to follow society in its immoral practices. Some of these accusations were probably not merely confused interpretations of misunderstood Christian practices. They were likely, get this, deliberate distortions of the truth designed to defame believers. Christians have been experiencing this ever since the first centuries. That the world turns against disciples of Jesus and wants to, doesn't want to know the truth or see the truth or even represent the truth, but distorts it in order to accomplish his purpose of hatred and reviling, slandering. 
So church, back in Luke chapter 6, do you see what we have to expect as followers, as true disciples of Jesus? Jesus has promised that this is what the world will do to us. But with that comes blessing. Hatred, exclusion, insults, and scorn. Now here in the U.S., Christians have, not, have never experienced persecution on a massive scale. It's possible that that is going to change. And we need to be ready. We need to recognize that this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That we must stand with Jesus and receive this kind of treatment. I don't know the future. I don't have a crystal ball in terms of what's immediately around the corner here in the United States and the world. But we have already seen actions like this beginning to happen in our land, have we not? Our stance on holiness and purity or our stance on sexuality and gender as God has defined it causes many to hate us and think that we hate them. Our views, you see, are not, only, are not just seen as old-fashioned, but they are considered dangerous. And thus we are increasingly unable to hold these positions the Bible makes clear and still hold positions in public office. Whether that's a school board, whether that's an elected position, or even in companies and corporations. Christians are not sure whether they can voice what they believe on these matters and still hold their jobs. We are being slowly ostracized and excluded on account of Christ's name. And again, notice that one of the tactics is to distort the truth. They will find ways to slander us and misrepresent our position. We can say that we love all people and we can say that till we're blue in the face, but they're still going to misrepresent our position because they hate Jesus. Because they hate Jesus. For example, we are called homophobic because we believe homosexuality is wrong. But we're not afraid of homosexuals. We don't hate them. We believe the Bible calls that a sin. And we try to lovingly communicate that to others. They say that we hate transgender folks, but we have no animosity to them. We simply want to hold the Bible's standard for humanity. They can say that we are racist because we believe all people are guilty of sin, not a particular skin color. Again, we can try to explain our position till we're blue in the face, but the tactics of the world and of the enemy is to distort. And I believe these sorts of things are only going to increase for us who truly follow Jesus. So what should our response be? Should we lament, cower in fear, In sadness, let's see what Jesus tells us in verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. That's right, we need to rejoice. We need to leap for joy. Jesus goes out of his way to talk about the kind of reaction that we should have. He doesn't just say that we should have glad hearts. He says, he uses the word for leaping. That even when we're in the midst of the persecution, he says on that day, in that day, is when we leap for joy. You see, this 
joy is not a belated response to persecution that occurs after the insults have ceased to sting or the nerves torn by the stripes on one's back have ceased to scream. This joy characterizes the disciple even as the insults are hurled and the scourge lacerates the flesh. This joy is to come in the midst of that persecution. We saw the disciples exemplify this, did we not? They were, they were, persecuted and scourged and beaten and they left rejoicing. They were, they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. They went left leaping for joy. Why can we have joy? Jesus gives us two reasons. One, our reward is great in heaven. Our reward is great in heaven. We might be receiving mistreatment now but we are going to get a greater reward. Greater than receiving physical comfort now is the reward of receiving divine approval later. This will be the great reversal. We will receive the acceptance and the joy of the Lord as he receives us into his presence. And the second reason we can do this is that we're in good company. We aren't the first ones to experience this and neither were the disciples or Jesus. He says that so their fathers did to the prophets. And Israel's history shows their mistreatment of the prophets, of those who spoke the true word of God, and they were mistreated and persecuted. And Jesus says, you will stand in their line. You will be as a faithful prophet of God if you continue to remain faithful and rejoice in this. So friends, this is, these are the qualities of a true disciple of Jesus. There is present pain, but there is future gain. We've got to live with an eternal perspective not looking to the here and now, to our comforts, what makes us happy and, and, and joyful and laughing and, and, and comfortable here and now. We're gonna look at the woes next week. There's serious indictments for those who live for this present day. But the true disciple of Jesus looks to eternity and sees that that's where our reward is coming. That's when we will rest from our labors. That is when joy and comfort and peace will come. Church, may we look to Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior, realize he has walked this road ahead of us and that we must look to him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We follow a suffering Savior and therefore we as true disciples of Jesus are called to suffer as well. As we sang earlier, may we turn our eyes upon Jesus and may we find hope and courage for our life in this day. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, that you would use the scriptures to examine and pierce our own souls, that each one of us would be able to look into our hearts and see, Father, do we truly follow you? Are we truly a follower of Jesus? Please give us the discernment. Please cause scales to fall from our eyes that we'd be able to look with brutal honesty. And Father, may we, as your church, be able to stand strong in this evil day as disciples of a suffering Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen.